by God. And then in verses 20 and 21 of that same prayer, Jesus also talked about how his mission was ultimately that those who would believe in his word would be one with him, just as he had been one with his father, and that his his disciples who believed in him would also have unity with one another in a way that would reflect the unity that he had with God. And so we want to focus on how can we fulfill the mission of Jesus? How can we know God and know Jesus in a way where we are identifying him as he is? How do we know him as he's revealed himself? But how do we have oneness with him, this idea of identifying with him? Well, in John chapter 1, where we're going to be anchoring ourselves today, we're going to be spending pretty much the whole time of looking at text in John 1, uh, save for like a few verses in 1 John from the same author. But what this lesson really is focused on is in John chapter 1, 1 through 18, John, who was acclaimed witness of Jesus, he saw Jesus in a way where he basically summarizes how Jesus came to identify the Father and how we identify with the Father is based in these concepts of grace and truth. And so I just want to illustrate this biblically this morning. And again, just to kind of reference the last lesson of why this is so important, the Bible as a whole is designed with the purpose to accomplish these things. We looked at the, in the last lesson that there are 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. All these volumes of writing, Jesus claims, are based in revealing who he would be, how he would come into Jerusalem, and how Jerusalem would be this place where he would be manifested. And that starting from that place, the, the proclamation of the gospel, his suffering and resurrection would spread to all mankind, revealing how all men would identify with him through faith and repentance of sins. And this will help, I think, put all of that in a clearer context. So let's read uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 to start. And just be thinking about this, um, this picture of seeing God in these ways we read this. This idea of how John is identifying God just in these first 18 verses, and how even in these first 18 verses, he speaks about how we in turn identify with him. So John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained them. I think what you see in these first 18 verses is John, who uh, in these first verses, especially verse 14, he mentions that he saw Jesus' glory. You know, and glory is this idea of the weightiest thing, the most important, most substantial thing. And what he saw is that the most important thing was seen that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so what I want to focus on is how do we see the grace and truth of Jesus in a way that draws us to identify ourselves with him? Um, it's going to be kind of distracting. I'm going to plug my laptop in right here. I've just got a message the battery's about to die. Um, so the first, first point, I just want to focus on the nature of Jesus' grace. And again, just focusing on how does God lead us to see his grace? And the first question you'll see on the outline is just what is grace? I think there are some dictionary definitions that can be helpful to maybe push us in the right direction. Um, usually it's defined as like um, receiving what you don't deserve, whereas mercy is more not receiving what you do deserve. Uh, grace is usually defined as unmerited favor, right? And those, those are helpful ideas, but really like we talked about in the Nehemiah class, grace Really, ultimately, we need to see it illustrated in examples to really understand it. And Jesus gives us those illustrations in a way that I think really defines this concept in an understandable, tangible way. So we're going to try to move in that direction. But I think the idea of favor really does encompass really everything involved with what grace is biblically by God's definition. For instance, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it mentions that Jesus, as he was growing up, he grew in favor with God and with men. And that word for favor is the same Greek word that would also be translated grace. People would listen to Jesus' words. They would be in awe of the gracious words that he was speaking, words of favor. So really, favor, I just want to see how this can be maybe understood in a way where we can put our hands on this concept of grace and be drawn to God because of being able to identify that grace and want to identify ourselves with that grace. So usually when you think about favor, think about favor in terms of something you're receiving from somebody because of what they're capable of giving you, right? Maybe something that can bring you joy, something that you see necessity for, usually like a service being offered. So for instance, I've, I've recently moved into an apartment or at least like, you know, I've leased an apartment. And in order to lease that apartment, it's not something that's free, right? Like I've got to pay for that favor. And specifically, the people who have built the facility, who own the facility, I'm paying for the use of their facilities. I'm paying for their favor. Well, and if I ever get internet, right? So I don't, I don't pay the facility of the apartment for that favor. I'm going to pay probably Comcast, right? Because they offer that service. So I'm paying for that favor. Think about groceries. The grocery stores pay farmers, or, you know, factories, or whatever it might be, for the favor of getting their labor so that they can sell their product. And I go to the grocery store. And because I recognize I need food and I get hungry, I willingly pay for the favor of that service so I get food. The point is that we are used to paying for favor. So the idea of, like, unmerited favor, if, if, if I'm really honest, that is a really difficult concept to understand. And I think in paying for favor it really narrows down the kind of illustrations that we have at our disposal to really understand the concept of God's unmerited favor more clearly. Um, look at verse 14 of John chapter 1. 
Notice it says Jesus was full of grace and truth. And in verse 16 it says of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. The idea really is like everything that gives life, everything that makes life livable, everything that makes life beautiful, that brings us joy, really everything that we've seen that we need, everything we wanted to pay for, ultimately it's God who is the source of giving all of those things. And what men put price on, God did not put a price on those things. He just gave it freely of his fullness. The food that I eat every day, the clothes that I'm wearing, where I live, the fact that I can sleep at night. And in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul will even reveal that what Jesus brought into the world is that even the breath we breathe one by one, each breath that we take is a gift of God's favor given to us so that we can receive life. So everything that we've loved, everything we've ever sought for, everything we've ever wanted ultimately comes from the source of God. Now, with John 1.16, everything that affords us joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, or has loveliness, I think the way that we can understand God as being the source of all of these things isn't really through um, paying somebody for a service they're offering, but really a family relationship or a, a, a relationship that's based in love. Um, and I think we can eliminate not only having to pay for any favor as an illustration of this concept, but even like even a marital relationship, I think we can eliminate because there is a sense where you have to win the affection of the other person in a sense, right? So I think there's really one, there's only one relationship that exists that I think Jesus is pointing to even in this text that really conveys unmerited favor in the most clear sense. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And notice even earlier in verse 12, it talks about receiving Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. So there's this idea throughout even this initial text that Jesus came into the world to reveal that God is a father and he's a father to children, right? You think about a child in the, uh, in the household of their parents. Have they done anything to earn the privileges or to earn the blessings of that household? Have they really done anything necessarily to even earn the love and affection of their parents, the compassion of their parents, even the plans that the parents make for the child's future? Have they done anything to earn those privileges, right? If you think about if a child is born into a, a household with a lot of power or wealth or wisdom, Maybe a child is born into a household that has like a lot of governmental authority. Um, maybe it's a household where there's just a lot of love in that household. The child really hasn't done anything to deserve that or earn that, right? And a lot of children get born into households where there isn't any wealth, there isn't any love, there isn't any wisdom, there is no power, there is no authority. Because children don't earn those things, right? They're just kind of a victim to the households that they just happen to be born into. So I think if we're able to understand how a child has a relationship with their parents, we're able to picture this idea of unmerited favor a little more clearly. Another note here on the back of the first page. So in Matthew's gospel, God is referred to as a father about 47 times. So not just the word father, but specifically when God is referred to as a father, about 47 times. In the Old Testament, um, God is referred to as a father maybe like five or six times. In John's gospel, God is referred to as a father 133 times. 
So like it massively eclipses every other book of the Bible and even the entirety of the Old Testament in this portrayal of this concept of grace being linked to seeing God as a father and Jesus would constantly reference God being his father. So I think we could take it even further. Um, not just a child born into a household, but I think based in verse 12 of chapter 1, really the clearest possible illustration is adoption. When a child is adopted into a household that they were not even born into, right? Um, and you'll see on the illustration, um, Anna, who is um, amazingly here this morning. Not many of you may um, know about her background, but Anna comes from a really broken background. And really the reason why Glenn and Antoinette were linked up with Anna really wasn't because of anything very specific. It was almost like at random, right? There's this woman who's just willing to give up her child to adoption. And really, the only reason why there's this capacity to connect is there's love and compassion and capability that parents just want to share. That's it. That's all it is, is there's love and compassion that parents want to share. And that is signaled in John chapter 1. So if you again look at verse 16, of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Imagine you're a child in your parents' household, right? Or imagine if you're a parent who has children. Imagine if your children, when they're very young, I mean, like, think about if your child was only like six or seven, you know, just not even ten years old, and you are literally giving them everything that constitutes life. Everything they enjoy is literally coming directly from you. And you have control over their life, you have authority over their life, Imagine that they took everything that you gave them and they identified themselves completely with someone else's household. Imagine that they identified themselves even with people who abused them, who mistreated them, who degraded them, who humiliated them, who bullied them. Imagine your child would come home at night just to sleep in your house, just to continue to get the resources that you give them, and you you see them coming back to your house bruised, battered, emotionally distraught and they will not allow you to do anything about their condition at all and they keep going back into this other environment even though you are constantly hemorrhaging resources in order to show them that you are the source of their affection right so i think that helps illustrate this idea of jesus coming to help us to see our need to be adopted into god's household right that god's offering us a grace that we've already been receiving and the problem is what we've done is we've taken all of the resources that God has given us as a sign of his affection, of a sign of the uniqueness and the importance of his love, and we have misassociated the source of all of that grace, and therefore we have forgotten God and separated ourselves from him. And that is the, the, I think, ultimate consequence of sin, is sin destroys our capacity to recognize the love that's been given to us from God and the source of that love. One thing I don't have on the outline before we move into Jesus being full of truth. Just in considering all of this, and I think there's other angles to see grace by, but I think this is like the most fundamental angle that, again, John's gospel just consistently hammers on. There is actually one condition for grace, and I really do believe it is only one condition. And can you you guess what that might be? Like, if I was to ask you, like, Is grace conditional? You may say, well, sure, grace is conditional on my obedience, right? Um, 
I suggest to you that 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 may be right in part, but it's actually really, in a sense, wrong. The condition of grace is the well-being of the one receiving it. Nobody gives grace without seeking the well-being of the person receiving it. And I mean a parent to their children, right? So, you think about this. If a child doesn't recognize the love that's being shown to them, if they don't understand with any gratitude what's being done for them, any at all, and they reject the idea of all the grace they're receiving coming from their parents, they reject the idea of that being a sign of this desire for fellowship and for this relationship, how will that impact the well-being of the child? How will that impact their future when they finally gain independence and that favor is no longer accessed in the same way? How is that child going to do, right? I'll suggest to you that that child's life is going to be an absolute disaster, right? So the condition of grace is the well-being of the one receiving it. And I think that helps put into context truth. God speaks truth. He gives command always for the well-being of us receiving his grace and being able to navigate life in truth, right? Because if a parent is loving their child and giving them grace from that love, the, the requirement of that grace is simply the, the well-being of the child receiving it. So, Jesus being full of truth. I want to consider this as well, based in verse 14 again, that Jesus was seen as being full of grace and truth. I think the first quality of how Jesus can be seen as speaking truth and being full of truth, this is easy to overlook, I think, this first, this first quality. When I think about truth, I think my first thought is like one plus one equals two, and that's truth. Gravity works, I throw a ball in the air, it comes down back on the ground, that's truth. So it's kind of like these stagnant kind of laws of physics and equations mathematically, like these things that are just kind of true no matter what. That, I think, is, is a part of truth. And again, just like the illustration earlier where the requirement of grace is obedience, that, that's partly true, but it's not really the, the clearest, I think, most vital component of it. Really, the first quality of truth that's seen in John's Gospel is the fact that Jesus was speaking by higher authority. And I think if we think about truth that way, we're thinking about it by its most clear context based in how Jesus defined that. So John 1 in 14, notice it says that he was of the Father. The Word came from God. And in verse 18, the Word became flesh. And because we have not seen God, Jesus came to explain him. So Jesus speaking and, and describing one of higher authority. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 11. This is in uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 11. Just kind of think about this idea of truth being a faithful representation of a higher authority. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not uh, accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Look further. Uh, These are the words of John the Baptist in verse 31. John the Baptist in chapter 1, he testified of a higher authority. Therefore, John's testimony was true because he was faithfully representing the source he was sent from. And look at what he says about Jesus in the same way. Still on this idea of representing a higher authority. He who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And throughout John's Gospel, there are affirmations that just circle on this concept of Jesus trying to get his audience to understand that he was speaking by an authority greater than himself. But look at chapter 7, verse 18. I think this is a verse... Um, that just really clearly speaks to this, especially in this idea that Jesus even qualified this representation as being truth. Look at John chapter 7, verse 18. John chapter 7, verse 18. Sorry, I didn't move the points forward. We're now on the nature of Jesus' grace particularly. Um, It says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. The idea of there's no, there's no authority greater than my own. I'm just speaking by my own thoughts, my own experiences, my own ideas. But, still in verse 18, he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. The reason why this is important is if Jesus was from God, right? If Jesus was representing the truth based on what God desired him to say, If there is law in nature that man cannot undo, think about the sun, the moon, weather patterns, nature, seasons. I already mentioned the laws of gravity, physics, mathematics. If if there are all of these things in natural environments that we cannot undo but have to live and abide in, if God is the creator of all of these things, then God is the source of truths that cannot be changed. And that God is the source of a truth that is as true as the laws of nature around us, right? So establishing first, was Jesus truly speaking by the authority of God? If we can establish that Jesus was speaking by the true authority of God, we can establish then that his words are as true as these other laws of nature and physics and just the way that the world works around us without us having the capability to undo it or break it. Um, The second point about this is, well, before that, I don't want to skip this illustration and how this gives light and life. Um, If Jesus was speaking from a higher authority, he's speaking from a greater and clearer perspective. Um, In Minnesota, there's a large forest that I think is one of the largest forests in the country. Um, It's called Namaji. And Namaji is like a winding infinite maze of confusing paths that all look the same and you can get lost so easily in this forest. It's, it's incredible how large it is and how many paths there are just kind of winding in just the most confusing way through it all. So my dad, he grew up going to Nemaji with his parents and he, he had kind of a mind where it was easy for him to memorize things that he read or experienced. So by the time we went to that forest, I mean, he had that forest memorized like the back of his hand. So because of that, there were many times I was camping with my dad one-on-one at night, and we would just kind of blitz through the forest in our car on four-wheelers, and I would literally have no idea at all where we were. And if it was up to me, we were going to spend the rest of our lives in that forest because we were not going to get out. But because my dad had so much experience in that forest and knew it so well, I trusted 
that he had the capability of acting in a way where he could navigate us through the darkness of that forest with an understanding that would get us where we needed to go, right? Because in a sense, my dad was a higher authority because of what he had seen, what he had experienced, where he was from, and he had proven that by example many times to win my trust. So we always made it out, obviously, of the forest at night. That came in handy especially one night when I got in an ATV accident and I almost died. And my dad, we were, we were at least 30 minutes deep into the forest on just one trail after another. And I trusted that even though I was in critical condition, he could get us out. And he did, right? Because again, in an emergency situation, you need that trust to get you back into safety, right? And I think, again, that's a way of understanding how Jesus being from a higher authority is so important for uh, the fact that he's going to speak truth. If, if we're in an environment that we cannot navigate because we can't, we can't see the things around us, we trust the one who has the experience and the qualification of authority to help us to navigate what we cannot see. And imagine if we were in the forest, right? Imagine that I had gotten into that ATV accident and in critical condition, and just all of a sudden in that moment, I decide I don't want to trust my dad's navigation anymore. And my dad is trying to get me on the ATV and trying to reassure me that we've got to get out, we've got to get to safety. And imagine if I pushed against him and said, no, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't trust you to do that. I'm going I'm to figure it out myself. And, and in this condition, walking, um, I had a collapsed lung and my spine was heavily damaged. So imagine I try, like, crawling out of the forest. And, like, he's trying to pick me up, he's trying to help me, and I keep rejecting that. Do you, do you see how that would inevitably result in my death, Right? And that, I think, is, again, Jesus in his conversations, especially in John, where he is trying to help his audience navigate their way to life. And if we don't believe where he's from, if we don't believe his experience, if we don't believe his authority, then we will not allow Jesus to do the uncomfortable thing, the painful thing of helping us to see our condition to navigate us to life. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. So with all of this, truth grounds us in reality and represents reality as it is, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's painful. The idea is truth is never biased. Truth is not dictated by my preferences, my personality, my position. Truth is always going to be the same. And it's more clear when something is true when it's very clear that there is no like instability in its consistency or faithfulness, even when it's put to the test. Um, John chapter 4, 14 through 19. This is how Jesus was interacting with the woman at the well. And just to kind of point out some brief things about this account, there's this Samaritan woman at a well when Jesus is thirsty and he stops and asks her for a drink. And in verse 11, she mentions that he doesn't have anything to draw water with, and yet he's saying he'll give her living water. So after in verse 14, he assures her that everybody who gets his water is going to never thirst again, but is going to have a well of water springing up to eternal life. In verse 15, she asks for this water. And here's a key shift in the conversation. Jesus is helping her navigate reality in a way she has not navigated it before. And he's trying to bring her out of darkness into a light she has not seen before. So verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And stop there. So one of the interesting things about this conversation in verse 19, I don't think the woman is randomly changing subject. It can seem like that. I don't think she's trying to avoid what Jesus is saying. Really think about this. The prophets in the Old Testament, what were they doing for the people they were speaking to? Like if you think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, what was the core of everything they were trying to do in their message, no matter how long those books might be? It's the same thing that Jesus was doing here. Trying to expose darkness, to expose a person's need for God, but to lead them to life and light by helping them to navigate their way back to God. I think she perceived that this is exactly what Jesus was doing. He's exposing her sin. He's exposing that there's a problem that she needs to be rescued from. And he's exposing that there's a better way. I'm trying to offer you something that you have not found in what you've been seeking. Reason why this is important is it's related to grace. God's truth and grace are not combating against each other. They're not like two separate qualities kind of balancing on a scale and Jesus just somehow always managed to balance these two things. God's grace and truth in Jesus are actually one singular thing. And the reason why Jesus was speaking truth to this woman, the reason why he spoke in seemingly harsh and difficult ways in other conversations was always because of trying to get people back into the favor of God. Because of trying to help people navigate life in a way they've never navigated it before. Just like when I was in the forest and was critically injured, Jesus was trying to lead people to life and in order to do that had to often expose the critical condition of his audience. Right? So God's grace and truth in Jesus are not just two separate qualities. They are always in unison. John chapter 6. Again, we won't read this, but just to point out a couple of things. Just how truth is without bias. When Jesus had conversations like this, with the woman at the well, it went, it went well. And I didn't mean a pun in that. But when Jesus would oftentimes try to expose darkness and lead people to life and light with his words, testify to things that were greater than human experience, it wasn't always received well. And in fact, it was often not received well. Do you remember in John chapter 1 it said he came to his own and his own did not receive him? That's what we see in John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus is trying to urge them that they don't have life in themselves unless they feed on his body and on his blood. And in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? The reason why this is important, if truth has bias, if truth bends to preference, is it really truth anymore? Because then it's really opinion. Then it's, it's something weaker, and we can know that, right? The fact that Jesus was willing to lose everything to testify to these truths proves that Jesus lived without bias. Even greater than that, consider when Jesus died on the cross. How much was Jesus willing to do to testify to our condition? to testify to the fact that we only live as children of God because of his fullness and grace being given to us and the condition of grace being our well-being and God's unrelenting resolve to help us to see that we have no well-being without understanding the source of his grace being from heaven and his love. How far was was Jesus willing to go and how much was he willing to do to sacrifice in order to testify to those realities. 
Think about how Jesus was abandoned by his disciples. Everything that he had worked for, everybody that he had worked with, all abandoning him at his time of greatest need. Look at uh, John chapter 2, 18 through 19. And this will move to bring this point to a conclusion. The idea is not just his death, but Jesus' resurrection vindicates his word as absolute truth. And Jesus himself acknowledged that. Because it's not just that Jesus was unbiased in his willingness to lose everything for the sake of the truth, but the fact that he rose from the dead publicly and ascended to heaven proves without any doubt that Jesus was absolutely sent from God. That his nature was absolutely of a form outside of earthly existence. That he absolutely spoke from a greater, clearer perspective, greater than our own. That he absolutely understands our need for something that we do not have that he was testifying to in his lifetime. John chapter 2, look at verse 18 and 19. This is after he drives out the temple. Um, In verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And in verse 21 and 22, it mentions that this Jesus said in reference to his death and resurrection. John chapter 8, 28 and 29. Look at these uh, verses as well. John chapter 8, 28 and 29. John chapter 8, 28 and 29. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, for he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. The idea is, again, in verse 28 especially, Jesus acknowledged that the vindication of his words would come in a time when he would be lifted up, both in his death and in his resurrection, proving that he was speaking from a higher authority, that that higher authority is the creator of everything, testifying to the fact that his truth was without bias, and was not dictated or bending to any preference, personality, or position, and that Jesus was speaking light and life to those who were in darkness. Right. So the resurrection proves that God's truth is also not separated or balanced with his grace, but that they are one. And that God's truth is meant to bring us and bind us into his grace. So the last point is just fundamentally understanding how we're filled with grace and truth. Really my first question with this, and really the main question that everything else will be tied into, God's favor needs to fill our lives. Um, It mentions that of, of his fullness we've already received and then grace upon grace. The idea is God has held nothing back in his love for us the the way that life even exists is a testimony that God holds nothing back. He demands nothing back. And that it's just our well-being that is the requirement of his grace. Do you love Jesus? Is the question. And not just generically, do you love God? Do you love Jesus? And think, what if I confronted you personally with that question? Like if I asked you, hey, do you, do you love Jesus like, do you really, like, do you love Jesus? Would that question kind of make you, like, pause and maybe feel uncomfortable? Like, hmm, I don't really like that question, you know? And think about this. We serve our employers, right? We get favor from our employers. If you ask me, hey, you know, if I was working at UPS, do you love your employer? I think, like, hmm, I mean, that makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I, I guess I love them biblically, you know? I, like, I serve them, and I'm like, I'm glad. I, I know I need to perform duties, and I think if we're not careful, that's what our service to God can become. Is like, yeah, do I love Jesus? I mean, 
I know I need to be obedient. I know that, like, you know, obedience is commanded and that my faith is expressed in obedience. So, you know, I mean, I, I obey him. But do you love him? Right? Do you love him? Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 39 verse through 44. You just think about this. Do you think John would have had trouble with that question? Like, if you asked John, who had spent three and a half years with Jesus, you said, John, do you love Jesus? What do you think he would immediately say? How about Peter at the end of John? When Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I love you. Three times. If you ask the Apostle Paul, hey, Paul, do you, do you love Jesus? What do you think he would say? John chapter 5, verse 39 through 44. You search the scriptures. It's talking to the Jews at this time. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men. Think about that even as, as favor from men. Uh, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The terrifying thing is the Jews loved the scriptures. Verse 39, they searched the scriptures. They acknowledged life was in the scriptures. And yet somehow in the midst of loving the scriptures, having a zeal for God, being dedicated to God, they had in verse uh, 42, they had no love of God. None. To me, that's horrifying and shocking. That I can be zealous for God in a way, I can search his scriptures, I can have a dedication to him, and yet I can actually be completely absent from the very thing that ultimately identifies me with God and identifies him with me. So I want to think about that for a minute. The first thing before we look more into a couple of scriptures is we can't snack on Jesus, right? In John chapter 6, he was telling his audience, you've got to feed on me. You've got to eat my body and drink my blood. And if you've read that and you've thought, oh, that's, that's just talking about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to suggest to you, he's talking about living every day being filled by his body and his blood. Just like I eat food to be satisfied, just like I drink water to not uh, have a thirst that leads me to be overly thirsty, Jesus must be the source of my fulfillment. It is unacceptable to just have Jesus as a snack sometimes. Our lives must be constantly more and more filled with evidence of our overflowing love for Jesus. Do you think Jesus' love for his disciples was evident? Do you think it was clear how much he loves his disciples? Look at John chapter 14. And there's a few scriptures, but we're going to push through these fairly, fairly briefly and bring the lesson to a close. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think it's easy to snap to the second half of that and say, oh, okay, there it is. Like, I've got to be obedient. And that's, again, that's true, but is that really the whole picture? The idea, I think, here is if we love Jesus, if we actually truly have a deep awe and adoration of him, when we respect what he's done for us, when we're overflowing with gratitude for his work, the people you love, you study them. The people you love, you examine them. 
The people you love, you take pains to consider how to please them. The people you love, it changes your approach to them. It's not like you're just serving your employer at work and fulfilling tasks. You, out of love for them, are doing things that you will not do for anybody else because of the fact that you love that person. And it's greater because of recognizing how we've been loved by God. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Here's a question. How are you doing with seeking fellowship with God's people? How far do you go to have fellowship with God's people? Because did you know that I can confess that I love Jesus with my mouth, but the way that I'm living can prove that I'm a liar? 1 John will get more into that. And so let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. And this idea is just fundamentally the favor of God. If I'm not seeking fellowship and to serve and to bless God's people, I can say that I love Jesus, but if I'm rejecting the implication of God's favor by not serving others, especially the children of God, it proves that there's something fundamentally wrong in my confession. Look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The idea is we ought to love one another. Think about this. You can even think about it if God has so shown us favor, so we also ought to then favor one another. Just as God has shown us favor, we ought to favor one another. So if you're here and, and you're not invested in God's people, how will you be able to stand before God's judgment when he takes you into account and causes you to have to give an answer for what he's given? And it's not the idea that we're trying to scrutinize and disqualify or judge one another. But the idea is we know God's word will be our source of judgment in the end. And if you are not investing in God's work among his people, how can you think you can stand on the final day when that will be the commandment he primarily holds you accountable to? Right? We have to be careful that we're not so excusing ourselves by just piling on excuse after excuse why I can't be involved, I'm busy with this, or God's people are like that. None of those excuses will stand in the last day as Jesus made no excuse for not fulfilling his mission in confessing that he loved his disciples, not just in word, but in deed and in truth. And so all of us have to fall in the same position. It's not that one person needs to feel guilty or desire repentance over another, but that God's favor puts us all in the same place. All of us are adopted children. All of us have received a fullness of grace that we are constantly striving to more fully comprehend. And the invitation is simply to understand the love that's been given to us. That Jesus came to embody a grace that transcends any expectation we could have ever had in what kind of way God is seeking to identify with us. And God is seeking for us to identify uh, with him, not on the basis of works or merit or impressing him, 
But just on his seeking our well-being in redirecting our focus and redirecting our hearts to light and life so that we can live in his grace and in his truth. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning to direct your mind to the love of God and recalibrate your perspective to be more invested in his grace, come while we stand in the invitation song.